Every now and then, the YouTube algorithm recommends me a video with a title like Acts of Kindness That Will Restore Your Faith in Humanity. And you may have come across similar videos as well. And as heartwarming as these videos may be, they highlight the fact that many have indeed lost faith in humanity after all the terrible things that they have seen or perhaps even experienced firsthand. And we would probably agree that there's a lot that's wrong with the world. The world's in a mess. The things that people do can be very depressing, very disturbing. The Apostle Paul would concur with this negative assessment of the state of humanity. In Romans 3, 9 to 20, he declares that there is no one righteous. No one, not even one. All have turned away from God and towards evil. There's no fear of God in the heart of man. And this is part of an extended argument that Paul has been developing since Romans chapter 1. So let's briefly trace that argument together. He described the sin of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he said that they had rejected God. He had given to created things the glory that was God's rightful due. And because of their idolatry, God's wrath came upon them and he gave them over to dishonorable and depraved behavior. Romans 1, 29-32 goes, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, as the Gentiles were being rebuked, the Jewish believers might have started feeling rather smug or superior. They might have been thinking, oh yes, all these terrible Gentiles, look at the things that they've done. And it's as though Paul anticipates this, because he then tells the Jewish Christians not to pronounce judgment, over the Gentiles because they, the Jews, were guilty of the same kind of sinful conduct. They did the same things. So when passing judgment over the Gentiles, the Jews condemned themselves. Despite their privileged status as the chosen people of God, despite having received the law to teach and to guide them, they had failed to obey the law and they were guilty of sin. Their circumcision became of no value because it was only an external symbol there was no inner transformation of the heart. There was no change in their behavior. They had failed to live righteously. Paul thus contended that Gentiles and Jews alike were lost in sin. All humanity is lost in sin with no righteousness of our own to boast of or to take pride in. And this leads us to today's text. Paul, speaking as a Jew, asks, are we Jews better off because of our spiritual heritage, the benefits and privileges that we have received from God? And his answer is, well, no. These are wonderful things, but the Jews were not better off in terms of their righteousness because despite all their spiritual blessings and privileges, they still sinned. All humanity is lost in sin. No one is righteous. Here, Paul isn't presenting an original line of thought. This is not something that he came up with on his own. Instead, he draws extensively from the Old Testament. 
He references several Psalms and also the books of Ecclesiastes and Isaiah. As just one example, let's look at Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, and you will surely see the similarities. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. God looks down at mankind and He sees that all have turned aside. They have become corrupt and wicked. And there is no one who does good. Paul writes in verses 13 and 14 of Romans 3 that the speech of mankind is is sinful and full of evil. He says their throat is an open grave, and this image is significant in Jewish thought. Because for the Jews, graves are tainted by death. Touching a dead body would result in one becoming unclean. And so an open grave, one that isn't covered, would mean that people are at risk of falling into that grave and becoming defiled because of contact with the dead body. What Paul is saying is that man's words bring defilement and decay. Man speaks deceitfully, and Paul employs the image of an asp, and that's a venomous snake. To describe the words of man, they are filled with deadly poison, venom. These words are full of curses and bitterness. But Paul stresses that the wickedness of man goes beyond mere words. In verses 15 to 18, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They are eager to kill, they leave ruin and misery in their wake, and they don't know the way of peace. Death and destruction are undeniably part of human history, and this continues today. We think of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the numerous incidents of mass shootings, murder cases that are in the news on a regular basis. Death and destruction are part of our world. And there's so much going on around us that confirms Paul's report on the sinfulness of man. Some years after Paul, the church father, St. Augustine, taught a doctrine of total depravity. and It means that while following the fall, all human beings live in bondage to sin. Unlike Adam, we cannot not sin. We cannot not sin. We cannot refrain from sinning despite our best efforts. We are predisposed to evil. This Augustinian view of the total depravity of man is very much in agreement with Paul's description of the state of humanity. But as we hear all this, well, some of us might want to question or perhaps even challenge Paul and Augustine. No one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Total depravity, is that all true? Because we know of some people, I'm sure, who are of outstanding character, who are very godly, who live by very high moral standards, and we might think that doesn't seem to describe them. Even those YouTube videos that I was talking about earlier on, well, there are these acts of kindness that show that people are capable of doing good, at least at times. We might look at our own lives and we would think, well, we can't be all that bad, right? We are able to do some good. 
Well, we need to correctly understand what Scripture is saying, and I want to summarize this with three points. The first is that the good we do does not meet God's standard of perfection. Second, the good we do is only possible by the grace of God. And third, the good we do is still stained by sin. The first point, the good we do doesn't meet God's standard of perfection. And Paul is speaking of righteousness as an absolute quality, not a relative quality. The point is not whether we are more righteous than others. We are either righteous, morally perfect, or we are not. We have sinned. And without exception, all of us belong to the second category. We have sinned. We are not righteous. Based on God's standard of righteousness, no man, no woman can be considered righteous because we all fall short. We all miss the mark. Because the passing mark for righteousness is not 50%, it's 100%. We're not righteous if we do more good than evil. It's not enough for us to do good 60, 70, 80, 90% of the time. No, if we do any evil at all, then we are not righteous. Second, the good we do is only possible by the grace of God. Because of our sinful nature, left on our own, left to our own wills, well, we cannot turn from sin and do good. But because we are made in the image of God, then by His grace, He enables us to do some good by grace. But we cannot take credit for this good that we do. It doesn't earn us merit because it's not our achievement. It's a gift, a gift from God. And apart from His grace, we would remain entrenched in our sinful ways. We wouldn't turn to Him. We wouldn't seek Him at all. We would have no spiritual understanding whatsoever. Third, the good we do is still stained by sin. Neither Paul nor Augustine would claim that man does nothing good at all. That's not what they're saying. But they understood that even the best of our works are still tainted by sin. In Isaiah 64 verse 6, we read that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. We think of them as very pure and righteous, but compared to God's standard of righteousness, we know they're not. The best of our works are tainted by sin. Our best efforts to do good are still fundamentally flawed because they're so often compromised by our sinful inclinations and motivations. That's the state we're in. St. Augustine is believed to have coined this Latin phrase, in cavatus in se, and what it means is that man is curved in, bent inwards towards himself. And it's a description of our sinful nature. Because sin isn't merely the wrong things that we do, it's that, but so much more, it's so much deeper than just that. Sin is this condition of being bent inwards in selfishness. Because we all, by default, live inwards in selfishness instead of outwards towards God and others. And this condition affects even the best of us. It affects everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that we do. Martin Luther reflected on this Augustinian concept in his lectures on Romans. And he writes, Our nature, by the corruption of the first sin, the sin of Adam, being so deeply curved in on itself that it not only bends the best gifts of God towards itself and enjoys them, 
as is plain in the works righteous and hypocrites, or rather even uses God Himself in order to attain these gifts. But it also fails to realize it so wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things, even God, for its own sake. Luther reminds us that, well, because of the darkness of our hearts, we make use of God in order to receive His gifts. That's ultimately what we want. Even when we are seeking God, we do it with selfish motives. And what's worse is that we don't even realize that it's happening at all. We are blind to our own sin. This inward bent, this selfishness contaminates even the good that we try to do. We cannot ever claim that we are 100% pure and innocent and righteous in anything we do. Not even in our good works, not even in our ministry and service. Recently, I was reading a book by Henry Nouwen, a Dutch priest and a spiritual writer. And I was very gripped by something that he said. And he wrote this in the context of being a peacemaker. But I think you'll find that these words are very relevant to our study today. And Nowen writes, It can indeed come as a great shock to realize that what we consider works of service in the name of God may be motivated to such a degree by our wounds and needs that not peace but resentment, anger, and even violence become their fruits. Though it might be easy to recognize the forces of darkness around us, it is very hard to recognize these same forces in our own good works. Self-doubt, inner restlessness, fear of being alone, need for recognition, and desire for fame and popularity are often stronger motives in our actions for peace than true passion for service. And it's so natural because of our sinful flesh that we are driven by this overriding concern for ourselves. Even the good that we think we're doing for others can ultimately be driven by sinful and selfish motives. We're not righteous by God's standards. The good we do is only by His grace. And the good we do, even the best of our works, is still stained by sin. Paul asked, uh, are the Jews better off because of their spiritual heritage, the benefits and privileges that they have received from God? And his answer was no. Well, in some ways, as Christians, we are more likely to identify with the Jews than the Gentiles, even though most of us are Gentiles by ethnicity. And the reason for that, I believe, is because, well, like the Jews, we see ourselves as the people of God. We have received His benefits and His privileges. We, we know His ways. We have received His Word. And so like the Jews, we would probably think it's the people out there 
who are the problem. They are the ones that are so much more sinful than us. The terrible state of the world is their fault and not ours. But Paul will want to say to us that we are not better off in terms of our righteousness. We too have failed to live righteously. Many years ago, a newspaper wrote to some famous authors and asked them this question, what's wrong with the world today? And the Christian writer G.K. Chesterton wrote back and he said, dear sir, I am. What's wrong with the world today? His answer, I am. I am what's wrong with the world today. We are what's wrong with the world today. And my friends, we have to stand with all of humanity and confess our sinfulness, our unrighteousness. And that's the conclusion of today's text. As Paul writes in verses 19 to 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being will be justified in God's sight on the basis of good works. We all fall short. We all fail to obey the law. The entire human race, including every one of us, is guilty of sin. And our mouths will be stopped. And that means that we can't argue for our own righteousness. We have no case. And we have to stand in silence before God and acknowledge, confess our guilt. You might be thinking, that's it's horribly depressing. And frankly, you're right, it is. But as we wrestle with a text like this, it also reminds us how important it is for us to read Bible passages in context. Because Paul draws an important conclusion here, but he's, he's not done. This isn't the end of his letter. It's not the end of his theological argument, but there's so much more, and thankfully so. My assigned text ends at verse 20, but it would be irresponsible, both theologically and pastorally, to end my sermon without looking beyond it. Without stealing the thunder from next week's sermon, let me briefly touch on the next segment of Paul's discourse. Paul's point so far is that we are totally helpless on our own. We are lost in our sin. And that's the big problem, is a problem to which we have no solution of our own. And try as we might, we cannot overcome sin through our own efforts. But we are not left without hope, because God has a solution. Paul writes in verses 21 to 22, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What the Bible wants us to understand is that we have to lose all hope in ourselves. And you may struggle with that as a very depressing thought, but it's necessary. 
We have to lose all hope in ourselves in order that we can then find hope in God. That's our only source of hope. Our only hope is to receive righteousness that is not our own. We have to receive God's righteousness that becomes ours through His Son, Jesus Christ, because we cannot be justified by our own works. We need a Saviour. And the Saviour has come. Our text presents a sobering message. It demands that we recognise our sinfulness, our helplessness. But in our brokenness, God calls us to cast ourselves entirely upon His mercy and receive His grace. And it's in that place of surrender that we will experience the freedom, the peace and the joy that He alone can give. Let me bring my sermon to a close by sharing a song with you and this would be played by video. And friends, I invite you to use it to reflect on God's word to us today and to respond to His grace. Amen. of surrenders laying down our own knowing that our good is good enough we perceive the grace of God giving him Trusting that what's broken will be made whole, and through death will come.
Sweet. 